and welcome to today's episode of Activate, my podcast where I interview survivors and people working in the field of gender-based violence as part of the 16 Days of Activism campaign for 2022. Today my guest is Emily Jacob and we're going to be talking all about rape and sexual violence. A lot of this podcast is focused on domestic violence but we have to recognise that rape and sexual violence is another form of gender-based violence. While this can happen within an abusive relationship, it can also happen outside of the relationship and I really wanted to dedicate a whole episode to this topic. It's really difficult to get an idea of the scale of the issue. The highest ever number of rape cases reported to the police in one year in the UK was 70,330. But Rape Crisis UK suggests that only one in a hundred rapes are reported to the police making that a pretty useless measure. It's estimated that one in four women will be raped and sexually assaulted as an adult. A crime survey in 2017 found that 4% of men have also experienced some form of sexual assault since the age of 16. It's thought around 12,000 men are raped in the UK every year. But again, there's likely to be a lack of reporting. That underreporting is often put down to embarrassment, feeling that the process is going to be further humiliating. The Office of National Statistics found that 38% of people in their study didn't think that the police would help, which when you look at the conviction rates is an understandable belief. In my interview with Emily, she didn't have the statistics to hand, so I went out and found the most recent ones. So the highest reported cases of rape were those 70,330 in March 2022. But charges were only brought in 2,223 of those cases. It really is quite a shocking statistic and that's why I'm so grateful for people like Emily out there doing the work in this field. Obviously as our topic is rape and sexual assault today and Emily and I are both survivors, please be aware that some of the topics that we talk about might be quite heavy and see to your own emotional safety as you listen to this episode. When I started writing my list of dream guests, you were right up there at the top of the list. So very excited. (laughs) Thank you. So could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Emily, Emily Jacob, and I've had a rather interesting life the last decade or just more than a decade or so since my divorce, I guess. I'm in a place now where I feel like I'm doing good work and um, have purpose, which I never had before. My company is Reconnected Life and I'm a coach and I help women like me who've experienced rape and sexual violence and I help them to move past their past, go from living one day at a time and barely surviving to feeling like they are thriving and really living a full whole life that's totally reconnected. So that's the work I do with clients one-to-one and also um, working with charities now as well, helping them to provide help to their wait lists through online self-help psychoeducational program called Taste of Recovery. When I went to Newcastle Women's Aid, 
one of the big thoughts that was in my mind is that domestic abuse didn't happen to people like me. Did you find the same through your journey and for the people you coach that there is this idea of it not happening to people like us? Absolutely. I actually only recognised my marriage as being abusive several years after my divorce and into my recovery treatment for the rape. But when I was raped, I thought rape was rare. I thought that rape happened to people who were not safe and mixed with the wrong crowd. (laughs) I was a white, privileged, middle-class woman, newly divorced from a very small social bubble. My ex-husband had been very controlling, which I hadn't recognised at the time. I thought it was normal, normal behaviour for a marriage. <laughs> That's know. just how it is, right? Yeah, <laughs> just, just, just how it, just how it is. He ha- he has a temper, and so you you do your best to make sure he doesn't shout at you. Again, he was never violent towards me. But, you know, as I said, my psychiatrist said I had levels of disassociation of someone who'd been in a war zone, and that didn't happen from the rape. That happened from the 10-year marriage. But yeah, when I was raped, I was just like, oh, this rarely happens. I thought that it would be in the newspapers that there had been a rape in Fulham. (laughs) And uh, it shocked me that it wasn't, it was, as soon as I started telling friends, lots of them started telling me that it happened to them. And I started to have my eyes open that this does happen to everybody. And I felt that because it only happened to people who had put themselves in bad situations that, you know, it was my fault because I'd been drinking and had trusted this man. And the myths around rape and sexual violence are absolutely poisonous in the survivor's journey to healing because it's This is my hypothesis, Anna, that the self-blame is just as hard or even harder to overcome than the trauma itself very often. Like I'm letting that sink in. Say it again, the self-blame. The self-blame is just as hard or sometimes harder to overcome than the trauma itself in the recovery journey. Wow. I think that's an excellent hypothesis. I'm re-evaluating things about my own story as we speak. It's the stories we tell ourselves inside our heads, I think, which are often our biggest battle inside. So as you know, I live with chronic pain. I have MS. And you know, they teach a lot when you're dealing with chronic pain that it's actually it's the secondary pain which is causing the most difficulty. And I think self-blame is kind of that secondary pain from trauma. And it's the stories that we're telling ourselves about the pain, about the trauma that cause us the most distress and can get in the way of the healing. And one of the biggest things that I found to deal with in my recovery was those moments where I was sharing my story and being met with other people's opinions on it as well. And I think that really fed into the shame and the self-blame I was feeling. Yeah, totally. When we share and we're not heard compassionately, that can set us back so much. I can't remember the statistics at the moment, but off the top of my head, it's somewhere in the region of 20% of women who have been raped don't tell anyone, not even their closest friend. Mm -hmm. And often when you do tell friends, if you tell the first person you tell and they go, well, you shouldn't have done that you shouldn't have gone out with him you shouldn't have trusted him you shouldn't have you should have said something at the time 
then that can stop people from then sharing with anyone else. Mm-hmm. I lost at least a third of my friendship group when I shared with people because of the way they responded that basically fed back those self-blame myths back at me. It's absolutely disastrous not to receive the compassion and empathy and support from someone when you disclose for the first time. And yet when you can share in an environment that is compassionate and empathetic and supportive and non-judgmental, that's when the burden you're carrying inside becomes so much less and you start to be able to connect into other people who understand and who get it and you can feel that connection again. I totally resonate with what you were saying there. For the first year after leaving my ex-husband, didn't tell any of our mutual acquaintances why I'd left. I just kind of did the usual, uh, you know, sometimes marriages don't work out and this is better for both of us. And the moment when I started talking to mutual friends about it was the moment that I was met with the most criticism and had that mass shedding of friends like you described. And it was really painful. Like you said, it's so important to be able to share what's happened to you in the safe environment. But it also leads me on to thinking about the criminal justice system and how the experience of that can also be disempowering for survivors. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) Oh, the statistics is just shameful. I don't know what to say except yes, and it's shameful and it's got to get sorted out. Most survivors won't even report and then the the rates of people going through the police referring to CPS, the CPS deciding to take on the two a case and then actually winning in a in a trial. I don't have the figures to hand, but we know that they've been going in the wrong direction. There is some really important work going on now, which I'm very hopeful about for change, but change does come so slowly. It's a systemic issue of victim blaming from the start. The assumption is of presumed innocent in our criminal justice system. And that means that it is presumed that the main witness, the victim, is lying. And that is an issue, in my opinion. That is a huge issue because we know that the vast majority of the time the victim is not lying. There are very, very few cases of false allegations and it's actually more likely that a man will be raped than be accused of rape. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done around how the criminal justice system approaches this and also at a wider level how society views and talks about rape. We tend to spend a lot of time teaching our daughters to be safe and not about teaching our sons about consent. Yeah, and consent for me was a really big issue. What messages do we need to be giving out about consent to the, I was going to say to the young people, but to everyone really, what do people need to know about consent? Consent needs to 
happen joyfully and enthusiastically. I think enthusiastic consent is what we are aiming for here. And if you are not receiving enthusiastic consent for what you're doing, and even if what you're doing is just hugging someone, if they are pushing away from you, if they are not joining in in that hug, if they're flinching away, don't hug them. That we need enthusiastic consent for any kind of body-to-body touching at every stage of the connection. If we don't have that, then we need to check in and say, okay, what's, what's going on here? No means no, and silence means no, and a yes under duress is not a yes. And this goes into, I mean, I'm kinky, and this goes into the the kink community too. And you know, a, a submissive needs to be enthusiastically consenting, even in a consensual non-consent environment, which exists. But that is enthusiastically talked about in advance. And the person who's, you know, you're playing with needs to know the signs, which means that that enthusiasm is gone in a way that's no longer acceptable. We often talk in the kink community about we have the communication skills to talk about consent because we are very much based on informed consent, understanding risks, understanding consequences. And yet we also have, you know, like all communities, we have people hiding in plain sight who are abusers. But so I think that everyone needs to understand enthusiastic consent is what we are aiming for. And sometimes you hear often straight hetero men complaining about the need to check in because they don't think it's sexy. Oh my God, consent is so sexy. You can make it really, really thrilling (laughs) to be continually checked in with about, are are you still okay with this? I love that. I feel like that needs to be a t-shirt, like consent is so sexy, Emily Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't think I was the first to say it, Um, uh, but but thank you. But yeah, consent is sexy. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I value you so much. So I'm so thankful for you. Ditto. I'm I'm honoured and humbled that you think this way about me. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I hope you loved Emily just as much as I adore her. I've put the links to her in the show notes so you can find her content and find out how to get some of her support if you're looking for it. Today's call to activism is not a one-time action. It's something that we can be doing day in, day out, whenever the situation arises. I'm so conscious that in the Western world, we have a rape culture, we have a culture of victim blaming, you only need to look at the publicity around the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case to see that whoever was the victim in that situation, it's not my intention to pass judgment either way, we have a culture, like Emily said, where victims are blamed and questioned and harassed and jokes are made that perpetuate this culture, perpetuate sexism. I'd love to invite you all today to commit to you where you can safely, challenging those jokes, those things that perpetuate that culture. I think it's particularly powerful when people do intervene, 
We all have the power to call out rape jokes, even just to not laugh. I know in the past I've laughed uncomfortably at jokes that have made me at the time feel very uncomfortable, but done it to ease a social situation. But I think now is the time where we really need to be delegitimizing sexual violence and taking away the punchline in those moments. I've put some links to how to do this in the show notes for anyone who wants to take this action but doesn't necessarily know what they would say in those moments. Tomorrow my guest is Dr. Susanna Petchy. Susanna is both a medical doctor and a trauma expert and we'll be discussing the wider context of trauma and the impact that it can have on our bodies. It's another great conversation and I look forward to sharing it with you tomorrow.